Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold. The confusion, please God, stops here. And today we are going to continue our presentation on prayer. We're going to be looking at uh, the work of Richard of Hampole, who was a hermit in medieval England. Also going to talk about the great, uh, speaking of England, the great patron saint of England, the great saint of chivalry, St. George, whose uh, feast day is this coming Friday. I have a St. George medal around my neck, even as we speak. Uh, Great devotion to the patron of chivalry. Also going to explain why tradition is not merely the past, but also the future of the Church. But first, speaking of traditional Catholicism, uh, here is the Gospel for the second Sunday after Easter, taken from John chapter 10. At that time, Jesus said to the Pharisees, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for his sheep, but the hireling and he that is not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep and flieth. And the wolf catcheth and scattereth the sheep, and the hireling flieth because he is a hireling, and he hath no care for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know mine, and mine know me. As the Father knoweth me, and I knoweth the Father, and I lay down my life for my sheep. And other sheep I have, that are not of this fold, and them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd." Thus far, the words of the Holy Gospel. Christ is our good shepherd. He takes pains to bring back, to seek and find and and return to the right way his lost sheep, which is to say uh, sinners. And he offered to give up his life for the sheep. And he even did do that. He offered up his life for the sheep and he gives them uh, himself to be their food and a pledge of eternal life. And so by this, this simile of the Good Shepherd, our Lord teaches us how great is his love and compassion for everyone. Uh, he gave his life for all. Uh, he was sacrificed on the cross to redeem everybody, without exception, uh, from sin and hell. And therefore, he is our only Good Shepherd. And all of those who are called to the pastoral office are Good Shepherds only insofar as they imitate Jesus in the love and care of the flock confided to them. It is, after all, his flock. And although Jesus died for all, not all will benefit from their redemption and will be lost. But Jesus says he knows his own. He knows all about them, their needs, their weaknesses, uh, their thoughts, their works. He leads them into the fold, which is the church, helps them by his grace, strengthens them, um, uh, enlightens them by his doctrine, nourishes, strengthens them with his flesh and blood in the most blessed sacrament, his pastoral love. And let's remember the word pastor means shepherd. Pastoral is shepherding. His, His pastoral love is infinite and divine because of who he is. Now, the question for us is, how do we know whether or not we are among his flock? And I'll answer with another question. Do you hear his voice? He says explicitly John, uh, in John 10, my sheep hear my voice. And what does that mean? Well, it means to, to willingly receive and to do your best with the help of his grace <clears throat> to live his teaching. Uh, the Catechism tells us that Christ teaches us through the Catholic Church. 
St. Augustine said, He who will not have the church for his mother cannot have God as his father. So those who hear his voice uh, are those who hear and obey the teachings of the Catholic Church, who often receive him in communion, who say, uh, make the act of faith and, and mean it. Those who are, are patient and meek in the sense that we practice self-control, more and more difficult in our current circumstances, because his sheep forgive their enemies. They have true love for their fellow man, which means that they do what they can to bring into the fold those who are outside of it. You know, our Lord foretold that the Gentiles also would believe in him and that all the faithful, both Jews and Gentiles, would be united in this one fold and under one shepherd. Uh, According to our Lord's words, there was to be only one church, and this church was to be united. That's his prayer at the Last Supper in John 17. He doesn't pray that it would be split into a a multitude of competing denominations or national churches, you know, but, but to be spread by degrees all over the whole face of the earth, that all nations would be gathered into the one fold. So the church that was foretold by our Lord, as we say in the creed, is Catholic or universal. And this one Catholic church, this united church, which according to his good pleasure our Lord himself founded, can only be the Roman Catholic church, which is spread all over the the five parts of the world and joined together in the unity of faith and unity of governance. Now in Luke 15, speaking of uh, the flock of our Lord, The Pharisees complained because Jesus was dealing, in their opinion, too kindly with the publicans and the sinners. And he spoke to them the parable of the lost sheep. He said, What man among you that hath an hundred sheep, and if he shall lose one of them, doth not leave the other ninety-nine in the desert, and go after that which was lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, doth he not lay it on his shoulders rejoicing? Then coming home, doth he not gather his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost? I say to you that even so there shall be joy in heaven upon one sinner that doeth penance more than upon ninety-nine just that need not penance. So it's like the simile of the good shepherd. The parable of the lost sheep shows our Lord's compassionate love, not just for the flock as a group, but for individual sinners, right? The lost sheep represents the sinner who, you know, through temptation, his own concupiscence, has separated himself from Jesus, is shut off from the number of the faithful. But our Savior doesn't stop loving the wandering sheep. Just as during his earthly ministry, he labored to convert to sinners, he still goes after the sinner today, calls him by his grace, invites him return to return once more to the fold And um, by means of the sacrament of penance, when he's found that lost sheep, he supports him on that that difficult road of repentance and receives him back with joy. And Jesus doesn't do this for his own sake. He doesn't need, you know, the straying sheep. He seeks him out of pure love and compassion for the sinner himself, wandering about in danger of losing his salvation. And it was because the good shepherd and his friends, as he mentions in the parable, are so uh, anxious about the salvation of the sheep that was in danger. That's why their joy at his return is so great and shows itself more outwardly than their calm joy about 
those who, who you know, uh, walking about without wavering, who remain on the path of salvation. You know, Christ is, is happy that you, uh, you know, are obedient, but he's, but he's, you know, it's like the parable of the prodigal son. <clears throat> when the, the, the son who had never um, done anything to hurt his father says, why are you throwing a party for the, the, the wastrel? And uh, the father says, and because, you know, you are with me all the time, but your brother was dead and now he lives again. And th- th- this is a perfect scriptural example of the important doctrine that it's God who gives the first impulse to the conversion or justification of a sinner, uh, moving him to be converted uh, by the action of his grace. And this, you know, it's uh, conveyed in a number of ways, uh, an inward inspiration, possibly uh, an admonition or a warning from family, friends, or, you know, your pastor. Even misfortune and sickness can be the agent of grace for, for conversion. And then the good shepherd supports the lost sheep, right, the fallen away Catholic, by his grace on the road to penance until he's once more restored to the state of grace, the state of justification through, you know, sacramental absolution. Also, this, this parable of the, uh, the lost sheep illustrates the doctrine of the communion of saints. <clears throat> because, pardon me, if the saints in heaven rejoice over the conversion of sinners, then it follows that they must have a knowledge of them. And therefore, that the angels and saints in heaven not only know about us, but care about us and pray for us. And hence, the traditional sermon program uh, in the Catechism of the Council of Trent uh, has uh, on this Sunday, this past Sunday, the second after Easter, for its doctrinal subject, the virtue of hope. As Jesus said, I lay down my life for my sheep. By his death, he has obtained for us not only the forgiveness of sins, and the grace and the means of leading lives pleasing to God, but also the eternal happiness of the life to come, which consists in the, in the clear contemplation of, um, you know, the perfect love of God, you know, to see God in the face. <clears throat> and the one thing that's, uh, um, before all else, necessary to obtain eternal happiness is the grace of God, uh, that, you know, enlightens our faith and confirms our hope and, and inflames our love, and through the sacraments imparts the strength required to do good. So we have to pray uh, for God's grace uh, and, and cooperate with it, because as St. Augustine said, although God created us without our cooperation, he won't save us without it. Therefore, the Church encourages us all to make an act of hope uh, in times of tribulation or especially in temptation um, against the virtue. When we receive the sacraments uh, during our ordinary lives, frequently during the hour of death, and, you know, you should include acts of faith, hope, and charity in your morning prayers. And so that you're doing it, it's uh, very daily. You know, it's clear that the compassion of our Good Shepherd binds us to love him above all things. So the question for me then is, how have I loved him up till now? He gave his life for me, called me into the fold of his one true church without any merit on my part, fed me with his doctrine and his body and blood, showered me with graces, And how have I repaid him? Have I always listened to his voice, always kept his commandments, or have I, on the contrary, offended him one way or another pretty much every day of my life? So we need to resolve to be sorry for our ingratitude and excite a greater love for Jesus, which we're going to talk about in the next section with the uh, uh, prayer with a medieval mentality. All that and more when we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here.
Okay, welcome back, No Nonsense Catholic. For the last couple of weeks, we've been doing a little series on prayer, and I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, a book that's been a favorite of mine for uh, meditation oh, for the last dozen years or so. It's called a, uh, a Book of the Love of Jesus, and it's a collection of prayers and some essays oh, pardon me, by a medieval English hermit named Richard of Hampole writing in the, uh, he lived in the first half of the 1300s. And the book was compiled and edited by Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson back in 1904. Now, I gave my copy away a few years ago to somebody I thought uh, would benefit from it, assuming I could just, you know, get another one, and um, to my chagrin, found out that it was out of print. But uh, recently, I discovered a downloadable PDF of it online. The book has, you know, long been in the public domain, so if you're interested, I'll have a link to the PDF uh, in my show notes. But the thing about the book is that the prayers were actually composed in English. They weren't written in Latin or some other language and then translated, but they were actually written in English, and they were very popular in their own day, back in the Middle Ages. And, uh, and it gives us some significant insight into the, you know, the prayer life of those days. One especially attractive point for me is that, uh, while uh, some of it's written in prose, Many of the prayers and devotions were composed in rhyming verse. That is to say, many of his prayers are also poems. And I think it's unfortunate that this practice has so uh, fallen out of favor in the post-conciliar church. You know, once upon a time, in the days before printing, books were copied by hand, and consequently they were, you know, somewhat rare and, and typically expensive. And so people had to commit things to memory. Um, like the old question-answer catechism. Things were learned by heart, even entire university educations. You know, so mnemonic devices, helps for memorization, were uh, very important. And meter and rhyme are two of the oldest and most effective. So, for example, when I became Catholic, I memorized a bunch of prayers. I mean, the uh, starting with the sign of the cross and the creed and the Our Father and the Hail Mary and the Glory Be. And that's just, you know, for the rosary and the Hail Holy Queen. Um, the Angelus, the Memorare, acts of faith, hope, and love, the act of contrition, the prayer to St. Michael, and so on. Like all Catholics, I know these and a bunch of other prayers, some of them even in Latin. But there was one prayer that I could never manage to commit to memory, and that's the Anima Christi. You know, uh, soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, etc. I, I don't have it in front of me, so I couldn't, I could not recite it for you. Because, you know, I, I don't know what it is. It's just, it's kind of like a laundry list. It just won't stick in my head. And then I discovered Cardinal Newman's poetic translation. Soul of Christ, be my sanctification. Body of Christ, be my salvation. Blood of Christ, fill all my veins. Water of Christ's side, wash out my stains. Passion of Christ, my comfort be. O good Jesus, listen to me. In thy wounds I fain would hide, ne'er to be parted from thy side. Guard me should the foe assail me. Guide me when my feet shall fail me. And bid me come to thee above with all thy saints to sing thy love. World without end. Amen. Beautiful, accurate, and most importantly, easily memorized. And it's even been put to music, you know, uh, which adds melody to meter and rhyme and makes it memorization even easier. You know, I understand that uh, they say that the typical American, typical modern American, 
can sing along to probably 2,000 popular songs. You know, songs maybe that you haven't heard in years, songs that you never intended to memorize. Maybe not a song that you could, off the top of your head, rattle off, but if it plays, you can sing along with it because, even though you didn't intend to memorize it, because that's the way, you know, melody and meter and rhyme stick in your head. So, apart from the the poetic aspect, though, the other characteristics of medieval English devotion emerge also in this book. And they spring, for the most part, from an intense and passionate love for the humanity of Jesus, the sacred humanity of our Lord. And from that principle branch out the, the, the minor distinctive marks of the old English piety. So, an intimate familiarity with our Savior. You know, I, I think it was Sherry Waddell uh, a few years ago in her book, Making Intentional Disciples, where I read that not only do the majority of Catholics not have a personal relationship with Jesus, quote-unquote, uh, but that most of them are not sure that a, a personal relationship with God is even possible. And it's understandable, I guess, that, that some Catholics would uh, be wary of you know, that question, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus, or you know, is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? Uh, I, can, I think because it's so associated with Protestant fundamentalism, right? That's the th- sort of thing you expect to hear from TBN, not EWTN. Uh, and even back in 1904, uh, I'll read here, Mar- Monsignor Benson said, It is no wonder that in our days many sincere persons are uneasy, that is with the idea of an intimate and personal relationship with our Lord, um, many persons are uneasy, for such an attitude is now so widely accompanied by an inadequate or heretical view of his person. But where, as in the case of our Catholic forefathers, the grasp upon his divinity is sure and unfaltering, there is no danger that an intimate affection for his humanity will lead souls astray or cause them to treat him with any lack of reverence. However, he also says, On these heights so near heaven, none can tread safely but those who have clear and strong perceptions of dogmatic truth, of that rock that alone can give stability to the pinnacles and spires of prayer. And therefore, Richard Roll uh, can call our Lord his dear and his child the best without danger of undue familiarity, just because he has such a profound sense of him as his maker and his God which is such an important principle. The foundation of prayer is doctrine. Prayer flows from doctrine, and liturgical prayer especially expresses doctrine. Now, according to to Monsignor Benson, the medieval English familiarity with our Savior is especially illustrated by the history of the Feast of the Holy Name. Um, for, you know, the use of a personal name, especially the affectionate use of a personal name, is a sign of personal intimacy. You know, um, (laughs) once upon a time, we didn't call everyone by their first name. You know, I forget who said it, but somebody uh, years ago said that what you have when uh, everyone is uh, addressed by their first name and wears the same play clothes for all occasions is not civilization, it's kindergarten. But my point is that, uh, yeah, using someone, calling someone by their first name has always been a, a sign of uh, personal relationship. And the Feast of the Holy Name was authorized in England in the middle of the 1400s under the title, The Most Sweet Name Jesu. 
And it was later sanctioned. It was indulgenced by uh, the Pope, Alexander VI, in uh, the beginning of the 16th century. But it wasn't adopted into the Roman calendar until the 18th century, right? So hundreds of years had been going on in England, the point being that the devotion to the Holy Name was widely popular in England long before it gained any hold uh, anywhere else. And, and this is also demonstrated by the, the works of St. Julian of Norwich and, of course, uh, Richard Roll, or Richard of Hampole. So medieval English Catholicism was characterized by a personal and familiar love of Jesus and by a great love and reverence for the Blessed Virgin Mary. Right? England used to be called Mary's Dowry. And it goes without saying, this is not characteristic of modern Protestantism. Uh, but to the old Catholic mystics who recognized the, you know, the, the, the great truth that Mary is in literal fact the mother of God, but that she was her mother, uh, their mother too, because they were in God and he in them. So devotional writers, though, who insist so strongly on, on the condescending humanity, who, who, who put so much into the familiarity with the sacred humanity of Jesus, at the same time, take great pains to emphasize the unique exaltation of Mary. Right? To them, she appears as, as mother of mercy and, and mother of all wretched and woeful souls, but a, a great and venerable queen. Still, Monsignor Benson says th that there was a measure, too, of familiarity we see in Mother Julian's vision of Mary as a, quote, simple maid and a meek young of age and little waxen above a child in the stature that she was when she conceived. Beautiful. But as a rule, she says, quote, above her is nothing that is made save the blessed manhood of Christ. So uh, for her, Mary is the well of all wisdom, the comely queen, the fairest that God ever found of all women, the fruit and flower and the tabernacle of the Trinity. So, Medieval English devotion, personal familiar love of Jesus, love and great reverence for the Blessed Virgin Mary, and lastly, a deep love for the details of the passion of our Lord. In almost every mystic, the details of the suffering of our Lord are the ground from which acts of love and contrition and ruth spring forward. Okay, that's where, that's where they come from. Now, you might say to yourself, what precisely is Ruth? You know, because uh, it's archaic. We no longer use that word. But we still use its antonym, which is ruthless. And we know what that means. It means unfeeling, um, without mercy, without pity. So in medieval times, Ruth was the word for pity or, or sorrow or compassion, right? Monsignor Benson said that this devotion distinguishes sharply the true mystic from his modern imitator, who mistakes vagueness for spirituality and idealism for intuition. It is supposed to be a mark of modern delicacy and spiritual instinct to despise and shrink from realism, to dwell upon the risen Christ, the robed and crowned king, or upon the stainless child of Bethlehem, and to avoid the vision of the blood-stained man of sorrows with his torn limbs. But the true mystic reads the awfulness of sin in the awfulness of the cross. The story of his own life written so carefully and accurately in blood over the white body and soul of his Savior. And he sets the infinite love of God in the infinite sufferings that he so willingly undertook. 
Monsignor says, the full fragrance of the beloved is not perceptible except when he is bruised and torn. So he's comparing it like to a flower. You know, you, the, the, when you smell a rose, it's when you crush the petals that the, that the aroma comes out. Therefore, he says, the medieval souls of prayer loved to follow him with tears and still mourning and love longing step by step along the way of sorrows to finger gently each running wound, to plunge their whole hands into his side, and there to feel Christ's heart so hot, loving them. That's some pretty, uh, pretty heavy stuff. Now, I'd like to um, examine a bit on his introduction to prayer, because uh, um, it's, it's interesting to me. You know, it's sort of a, a medieval how-to guide for meditation, and it's striking. I think you will see how modern it sounds, of course, apart from the, from the old English language. And we're going to do that when we come back. Also, we're going to talk a bit about St. George the Dragon Slayer. Uh, the 23rd of April, this coming Friday, is the Feast of St. George. So we're going to talk about George and his legend and lots more when we return on No Nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. We're talking uh, in our last segment about a, uh, a collection of uh, essays and prayers by Richard Roll, or Richard of Hampole, who was a medieval English hermit, a book uh, of the love of Jesus, which was compiled by Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson. And it begins with a, um, an introduction to prayer uh, by Richard of Hampole, which, as I mentioned before the break, is striking to me how modern it sounds, apart from the language, of course. Uh, he says, and, and this is, like I say, it's kind of a medieval how-to guide for Catholic meditation. He says, When thou orderest thyself to pray, or to have any devotion, begin by having a privy place away from all manner of noise, and at a time of rest without any interruption. Sit there, or kneel there, as is most to thine ease. So, translation, when you pray... Go somewhere where you won't be distracted or interrupted and make yourself comfortable. He goes on. Then be thou Lord or Lady, think well that thou hast a God that made thee of naught, which hath given to thee thy right senses, thy right limbs, and other worldly ease, more than to some others, as thou mayest see on any day, that live in great dis-ease and much bodily mischief. So he says you start by thanking God for your blessings, beginning with your life and your health, and the fact that no matter who you are, you know, God made you, and whatever your challenges, you're better off than a lot of others. He continues, Think also how sinful thou art, and were it not for the keeping of that good God, thou shouldst fall into all manner of sin by thine own wretchedness. And then thou mayest think soothly as of thyself, that there is none so sinful as thou art. Also, if thou have any virtue or grace of good living, think it cometh of God's sending, and nothing of thyself. So after thanksgiving comes contrition for your sins, and the recognition that every good thing you have comes from God. And, as Bishop Sheen used to say, any good that we do comes from God, and we thank him for it. Um, Richard uh, of Hampel continues, Think also how long and how often God hath suffered thee in sin. 
He would not take thee into damnation when thou hadst deserved it, but in his goodness hath borne with thee till thou wouldst leave sin and turn to goodness. For he were loath to forsake what he bought so dear with bitter pains. In other words, God has been merciful to us in that we might have died at any time and faced judgment when we were in a state of sin. In the words of the, uh, the ghost of Hamlet's father, uh, cut off in the flower of my sins, no reckoning made, consigned to fast in flames, oh, horrible, horrible, most horrible. But God has been merciful to us. And because, as Scripture says, God will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For you were not bought with gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ. Then he says, Also thou mayest think, for that he would not lose thee, he became man and was born of a maid. In poverty and tribulation all his life he lived. And after, for thy love, he would suffer death to save thee by his mercy. In such manner thou mayest think of his great benefits and the uh, and for the more grace to get to thee compunction behold with thy and for the more grace to get to thee compunction behold with thy ghostly eye his piteous passion uh, Rich's point is that Christ suffered and died for you personally that he would have done it if you were the only person who was going to be saved and in order to feel true contrition for our sins we should meditate right, on the passion. He says, behold with thy ghostly eye the passion, right, in, in spirit. In the original manuscript, then there followed a, uh, a meditation on the passion. And then, when there cometh devotion, then is the time that thou speak for thine own need and for all others quick and dead that trust to thy prayer. Cast down thy body to the ground and lift up thine heart on high with sorrowful cheer, then make thy moan. So when you're, when you're feeling the true contrition, when you're feeling compunction, that's the time to pour out your heart to God, to pray for yourself, and uh, to pray for, for, make intercession for others, for the living and the dead. And, and again, in the original manuscript, now there followed a prayer uh, uh, on the Passion, which contained acts of contrition and petition and intercession. And then lastly, he says, in such manner thou might, mayest pray in the beginning, and when thou art well entered into devotion, thou shalt peradventure have better feeling in prayers and in holy meditations otherwise than I can say or show. Good brother or sister, pray then for me, which by the teaching of Almighty God have written to thee these few words for the helping of thy soul. So from this beginning, from this start that he's describing, Richard of Hampel says you may reach greater spiritual heights uh, than he has reached or can even describe. And then he asks his readers to pray for him. So this program of, of prayer, this approach to Christian meditation, is as relevant now as it was in the 14th century. And it's precisely because it's oriented to God, who is unchanging. It's what, like what St. John Paul II said at the beginning of the 21st century. He says, it's not a matter of inventing a new program. The program already exists. It is found in the gospel and in tradition. It is the same as ever. Ultimately, it has as its center Christ himself, who is to be known, loved, and imitated, so that in him we may live the life of the Trinity. This is a program that does not change with the shifts of time and cultures. 
This program for all times is our program for the third millennium. And that's no nonsense. You know, next week uh, we're going to have on the program, um, please God, Eric Sammons uh, from Sophia Press. He's going to come and talk about uh, a new magazine they're putting out called Benedictus, which is essentially a traditional Catholic version of Magnificat. So it'll have, you know, the reading and the ordinary for the traditional Mass and prayers from the, uh, from the Divine Office for the morning and evening for, for all the days of the month. So he's going to come on and talk about that. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about it. The point is that, uh, as I said before, and, and hopefully we'll get around to this again before the show is over, the tradition of the Church is not just the Church's past, it is also the Church's future. Because, as John Paul II said, um, the program for us to follow is found in Scripture and tradition, and it is the same as ever. All right, I want to talk now about St. George. The 23rd of April is his feast day, that's Friday, and he is the patron of chivalry. He's the patron of knighthood. His insignia, the red cross on a white background, is, uh, was the symbol of the Crusades and the Knights Templar and of uh, such orders of chivalry as the Royal Order of the Garter in England. Right? Uh, and speaking of which, St. George was chosen as the patron saint of the English by the first Norman kings. And then in the 13th century, his feast was declared a public holy day. And in the Middle Ages, St. George was considered the chief of the seven champions of Christendom. You know, even now, St. George's cross is incorporated into flags that fly on every continent all around the world. But who was this paragon of chivalry, this dragon-slaying knight in shining armor? Who was he really? Well, first off, he wasn't English. George was a soldier in the Roman Empire who rose to high rank in, uh, in the Roman army and was one of the great martyrs in the early church. He was, he was a, a successful soldier. He was even honored by the emperor, Emperor Diocletian, for his bravery. But then came his conversion, and he resigned his position in the pagan army, and he started to rebuke the emperor for his cruelty and especially for his persecution of the church, right? Diocletian was a great persecutor of, of the early Christians. So George was imprisoned, he was tortured rather mercilessly, and his martyrdom is recounted in various um, acts of St. George. There's three main ones um, that come to us from the early centuries of the church. And it, again, it gained great popularity during the Middle Ages. I recall doing some research, I was researching chivalry and heraldry um, a number of years ago, and I ran across an art book in the library that was made entirely of depictions of St. George from illuminated manuscripts, right? So books of hours and so forth that had, and they were all on St. George's martyrdom. So you have these very vivid, full-color, you know, painted images with gold leaf and so forth uh, describing all of these fantastic uh, tortures that uh, George went through. He was finally beheaded, in uh, the year of our Lord, 303, and his body was moved to Palestine, and his tomb became a favorite destination for pilgrims to the Holy Land. And, and, and many miracles were worked through his intercession. Now, in the Eastern uh, Church, uh, St. George is one of those military saints that they represent in their iconography um, as, you know, riding on horseback and armed kappa P, right? So head, head to toe, uh, like the Roman armies uh, after the uh, the military reform of Justinian back in the 6th century. So he's in armor from head to foot. 
And at the time of the Crusades, the, the pilgrim knights from Europe saw those icons of St. George, and, and they saw in them a figure, um, you know, who looked to be an armor like their own. And, and immediately they adopted him as the patron saint of their, of their noble calling. And, and the popularity of St. George in the West had just exploded and gave rise to, to numerous associations, both secular and religious, including uh, the famous Royal Order of the Garter in England, which has always had St. George for its patron. And, and even though Protestantism uh, suppressed the veneration of saints, the chapel of St. George at Windsor Castle remains the official seat of the order, you know, where its chapters assemble, where the, every knight has a, a right to have a stall with his own um, banner, his own arms uh, fly. And that story of the Red Cross Knight who slays the dragon and rescues the princess that features prominently in uh, Edwin Spencer's 16th century poem, The Fairy Queen. I guess why a lot of our popular imagery uh, comes from that, written back in the 1500s. But it was really in the 13th century that uh, the story of St. George and the Dragon captured the public uh, imagination because it was included in a popular collection of the lives of the saints called the Golden Legend. And so we're going to talk about uh, St. George's, uh, the account of St. George in the Golden Legend and more, and also uh, how tradition is not just the past of the church, it is also the future. Also, I want to remind you, uh, you know, to visit bmpr.org. We've got a lot of cool stuff coming up, including in June, kind of a Catholic men's conference here at the Sacred Heart Chapel. So read all about it, and we'll be right back after this. Okay, welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. The uh, confusion stops here. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And we've been talking about St. George's Feast is coming up on this 23rd of April, this coming Friday. And um, we recounted how George was a Roman soldier, an early Christian, how he was a martyr under the Emperor Diocletian. Uh, but he also became then the, uh, the great saint of chivalry and knighthood. And uh, in fact, I have, <clears throat> every day I wear around my neck on a chain, I've got a pardon crucifix and uh, medals of St. Michael the Archangel and St. George. And uh, in fact, in the Middle Ages, in, the, in England, in the knighting ceremony, when the, the knight was, you know, being, a man was being knighted, they would do the accolade where they touch him on the shoulders with the sword in the name of God, St. Michael, and St. George. Okay, <clears throat> So it, this is of long standing back to the Middle Ages. But when we hear St. George, what immediately comes to mind is the image that's on this medal of George on horseback uh, running a lance through a dragon. George is the dragon slayer. And as I said in the last segment, this comes to us uh, originally from an account in the Golden Legend. So according to, uh, to the golden legend, a terrible dragon had ravaged the countryside all around a city of Libya called Selena, making its lair in a, in a marshy swamp. And its breath caused pestilence and whenever it approached the town. Uh, so the people gave the monster two sheep every day to satisfy its hunger. But eventually, of course, the sheep ran out and they started making human sacrifices, virgins, naturally. 
and these young girls were chosen by lot to be sacrificed to the dragon. Now, one sad day, the lot fell to the daughter of the king, the king of Selena's own daughter, and he offered all of his wealth to try and, and, and purchase a surrogate, but the people had pledged themselves that no substitutions should, you know, uh, no substitutes would be allowed, except no substitutes. Um, so the maiden, dressed as a bride, was led to the marsh uh, for her appointment with the monster. Then, as you guessed it, St. George comes riding by to ask the maiden what she was doing, and she explained what was going on and bade him to leave lest he might also perish. And the good knight, of course, uh, does not do that. He stays, and when the dragon appears, St. George makes the sign of the cross and bravely charges the uh, dragon, piercing it with his lance. Then asking the maiden for her girdle, right, which is the, the belt, the cincture that medieval women wore around their waists, and which is possibly uh, an explanation for the association of St. George with the Order of the Garter. Um, he bound the, the girdle around the neck of the monster so that the princess was able to, to lead it, you know, like a lamb on a leash. And so they returned to the city where St. George bade the people to have no fear, but only be baptized, after which he cut off the dragon's head and all the townsfolk were converted. And the king would have given St. George uh, his daughter's hand in marriage and the half of his kingdom to boot, but the saint replied that he must ride on. So he, you know, that first instance of the hero riding off into the sunset, bidding the king, meanwhile, to take good care of the churches, honor the clergy, and have pity on the poor. Now, there's an old saying amongst medievalists that when you read medieval literature, what you see is not what you get. Because in the Middle Ages, the most popular uh, literary device was allegory. And even common people understood that many of the stories of the saints, which were called exempla, were meant to be just that, uh, helpful examples Stories uh, with fantastic elements, oftentimes, uh, that were meant to represent deeper truths. And so some would suggest that, uh, that the dragon was meant to represent Diocletian uh, and the sacrificial sheep and the innocent virgins, the, uh, the persecution of the early Christians. Now, it's a little on the nose for me, but in any case, the, the figure of St. George and the dragon have come down to us as a symbol of Christian courage in protecting innocence and overcoming the spirit of evil, the devil, which Scripture refers to as the dragon. Now, uh, you know, not the devil only, but also his willing followers, and particularly persecutors of uh, the church and of the innocent. So what makes St. George a saint for all times is, is this, uh, you know, always necessary uh, virtue, uh, perhaps especially for our times when the agents of evil so often come to us disguised as wolves in sheep's clothing. So in honor of his feast, I'd like to turn to him uh, in prayer uh, from the divine office. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. O God, who didst grant to St. George strength and constancy in the various torments which he sustained for our holy faith, we beseech thee to preserve through his intercession our faith from wavering in doubt, that we may serve thee with a sincere heart, faithfully unto death. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. 
<clears throat> that remark about wolves in sheep's clothing is the segue to our final thing. I, I don't. I only have a couple of minutes, so I'm, I'm not going to be able to to do great justice to this. But I wanted to bring it up. Um, back in 2012, March of 2012, the Jesuit magazine America published an article um, in their magazine and on their website by a priest of their order named Father Peter Schindler, entitled "The Traditional Mass or the Tridentine Mass." why I couldn't go back. Uh, and I bring it up because uh, it came up again just two weeks ago. On the 14th of April, Dr. Peter Kwasniewski, Kwasniewski sorry, published an article why, called Why I Couldn't Go Back to the Novus Ordo <laughs> as a response. And, um, you know, and I asked myself at the time, why respond to some you know, liberal Catholic article throwing the traditional mass under the bus that was written almost 10 years ago? And Dr. K points out that uh, for the better part of the last decade, America Magazine has actually been paying money to promote this article on um, online search engines in hope of influencing public opinion against the traditional mass. He said they are evidently worried about the direction the youth are going in. And so he wrote his article as an antithesis. Now, you know, I went back and read Father uh, Schindler's article, and it's, you know, it's the, the same tired old straw man that we've been knocking down for years. And if you're interested in why I assisted the traditional Latin Mass, you can get my book, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, available from Ignatius Press or your local Catholic bookstore or any of the, uh, the usual outlets. Um, but it's interesting to me um, that use of Tridentine, Tridentine Mass, and also that, uh, you know, Father Schindler refers to the Missal of 1962 is the Tridentine Mass and the Novus Ordo as the Mass of Vatican II. And he's simply wrong on both counts. It's wrong to call the Novus Ordo the Mass of Vatican II, like you know, Father, um, know, Father Hireling did in his hit piece, because the Novus Ordo Mise was conceived by uh, um, Paul VI and it wasn't promulgated until 1970, right? So after the council was over. It's the Missal of Paul VI, not the Mass of Vatican II. You know, and I would challenge anybody to actually, and this priest, to read Sacrosanctum Concilium, right? Read the Vatican II document on liturgy, because I assure you that you can examine it with a magnifying glass. You can read it until your eyes bleed, and you will not find any mandate for a new order of the Mass. Nor will you find a mandate for the priest to face the people, or communion in the hand, or removing the tabernacle from the altar, or abandoning Latin, which Sacrosanctum Concilium says should be retained or abandoning sacred music, particularly Gregorian chant, which Sacrosanctum Concilium said should be given pride of place. Nor are you going to find mandates for you know, altar girls or extraordinary ministers of Holy Communion or, or any of a dozen other things. All of that happened after Vatican II, and you know, although often in the name of Vatican II or the spirit of Vatican II, but it is not in the council documents. So the new Mass shouldn't be called the Mass of Vatican II. And he's also wrong to refer to the Missal of 1962 as the Tridentine Mass, right? Um, uh, it's not the Mass that Pius V, you know, it's not identical to what Pius V promulgated after the Council of Trent. It's been revised many times over the centuries. And so it is more properly, I think, that you would call the, the Missal of 1962 should be what we call the Mass of Vatican II. And why? Well, let's, you know, do the math. John XXIII, against all expectations, called for this council in 1959, and by the time it rolled around, you know, it was pretty clear to everybody that uh, there were, um, you know, I mean, we're not, 
addressing some moral uh, urgency or some theological controversy to raise some doctrine to the level of a dogma. He just wants to, to update the way the faith is presented to make it more relatable to modern man. I think that was probably a, a, an error in prudential judgment, but I'm in sales, not in management. But the point is, by 1962, I think that John XXIII was already aware of the machinations of the more liberal factions of the church and the bishops to modernize uh, the church in a way that, you know, uh, to remake it in their own image, uh, you know, so to speak. And he took two actions, I think, that illustrate this. Early, you know, Vatican II first uh, started in October of 1962, but way back in February, John XXIII issued an apostolic constitution called Viterum Sapientia on the promotion and study of Latin, wherein he says, among other things, the church's language must not only be universal, but also immutable, meaning unchanging. Modern languages are liable to change, and no single one of them is superior to the others in authority. He said the employment of Latin has recently been con- recently been contested in many quarters, and many are asking what the mind of the apostolic see is in this matter. We have therefore decided to issue the timely directives contained in this document to ensure that the ancient and uninterrupted use of Latin be be maintained and, where necessary, restored. The other thing he did in anticipation of the council was to uh, issue a new edition of the Roman Missal. You know, the the liturgical movement had been clamoring for a hundred years for certain changes in the liturgy, some in the name of updating, others allegedly to return to ancient practices, uh, you know, which illustrates the two main factions of Vatican II, some, of course, more radical than others. Um, you know, and I, I don't have time to go into it all, but the, the point of fact, he, um, you know, fast forward to 1962 from the Tridentine Mass, and Pope John Twenty-Third issues a whole new edition. Uh, he adds the name of St. Joseph to the Roman canon, removes the term perfidious from the Good Friday intercessions for the Jews, suppresses the second fidier, among other things. Uh, and, and this was the edition of the Mass. It was celebrated by all the cardinals and bishops at Vatican II. So I would maintain that what uh, the extraordinary form of the Mass, as it's called today, the traditional Latin Mass, as we colloquially call it, is really the Mass of Vatican II. And that is no nonsense. All right. So much good stuff. We've got Eric Sammons coming up next week. going to interview him about the new Benedictus uh, traditional liturgical um, publication that I'm very excited about. Also going to talk about uh, some other things, possibly continue our um, work on prayer. And uh, hopefully I'm going to have something prepared for the Shroud of Turin and talk a little bit about that as well. So until then, I want to thank you so very much for, for listening and for watching on Rumble or YouTube or where, wherever we're not banned currently. <laughs> and you can always go to our website, vmpr.org. And uh, please enjoy all of the programs. Thanks for your prayers. And until next week, may God richly bless you and your family. <laughs>